And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm happy to welcome Jared Goldstein to the program today for the first of a two-part interview. Jared is a professor of law and associate dean for academic affairs at Roger Williams University School of Law. Today, we'll begin our discussion of his recently published book, Real Americans, The Problem of Constitutional Nationalism, which is published by University Press of Kansas. Jared, in Real Americans, you point out in the introduction that when some horrific action is committed, it's been a recent refrain in American politics to say, this is not who we are as Americans. But our history shows us that violence and bigotry has been a consistent thread in this American tapestry. That's right, Steve. Well, we have an idea of who we are as Americans, that we are devoted to liberty and to freedom and to constitutional ideals. But there are other threads in American history and in American nationalism that I think it would be a mistake for us to claim to be aberrant or separate from our history. America just isn't a single thing. There's no single essence of what it means to be American. We have you know, a history that both embraces liberal ideals of equality and freedom, but we also have a history that embraces hierarchy based on religion and race and ethnicity and gender. You know, There's just no one thing that is America. So I think it's a mistake to think that America has a single essence that we can point to and use as some sort of yardstick for measuring everything that happens and to say certain things are American, certain things are un-American, because we are a land of contradictions and there are so many different strands. You know, what my book seeks to address is the fact that all of these different strands, whether it's commitment to racial hierarchy and religious hierarchy or a commitment to ideals of liberty and equality and fairness and sovereignty, all of these different strands have been articulated in terms of a commitment to the Constitution. Both the Ku Klux Klan and the Civil Rights Movement both described what they were about as a commitment to the Constitution. That is, so does the, the ACLU and those you know who are in favor of separation of church and state, they describe their vision as being grounded in in the Constitution, but so do Christian nationalists who claim that the United States is a Christian nation. Timothy McVeigh, when he blew up the Murrah building, said that he was doing it in defense of the Constitution. And we see this again, you know, with the January 6th insurrection. Not surprisingly, the prosecutors of the insurrectionists and those who impeached President Trump for his role in the insurrection describe it as an attack on the Constitution, but the insurrectionists themselves describe what they were doing as a defense of the Constitution. All sides in all of our great national debates describe what they're doing as somehow advancing a constitutional vision. And that's really what my book is trying to get at, that the way the Constitution is used in all of our national debates to describe who we are. That is the connection between the Constitution and American nationalism and American identity. With the Constitution being a somewhat nebulous thing, other than kind of like the rules for administrating the government, how do we actually come up with these answers to these questions? Well, often I think, you know, we ask too much of the Constitution because when you read it, and I, and I teach constitutional law, and, you know, my students are always surprised by how little there is in the text. The text you know, it was full of very broad language and then some very specific areas like the president has to be 35 years old and there are two senators from each state. But then there's all this broad language talking about equality or liberty, free speech and the like. But we use the Constitution often 
as some sort of oracle to answer questions that the Constitution just can't possibly answer. So people look to the history of the founders to try to tell us who we are so that we could decide what we should do now. And because the founders themselves were full of contradictions and they didn't agree on on much, we can often find in our history support for any number of you know differing views about who we were that can then be used to tell us who we are and, and should be. Every side does this. You know, I spent quite a long time studying the history of the Ku Klux Klan, which, you know, is the nation's premier terrorist organization, you know, has acted for 150 years in support of white supremacy. But what people don't realize about the Klan, or at least most people I think don't realize about the Klan, is that they describe their mission as a defense of the Constitution. So I spent a long time trying to understand what is the Constitution meant to the Klan? How is it possible that this organization that is committed to white supremacy and and is committed to using violence in support of that vision for the nation could describe their mission as being a defense of the Constitution? And what became clear to me after reading countless Klan documents from 1868 to the present time is when they look back at American history, what they see is that the nation was founded by white Europeans to defend white power and to express certain kinds of white Christian ideals or ideals that the Klan associates with being white and Christian, and that they find then those ideals in the Constitution. They say that the nation was founded as as a white nation and that the constitution was meant to embody that belief. And unfortunate truth, or at least the the truth I think we can't avoid confronting, is that the Klan is not altogether wrong about this. That is, they're not altogether wrong that the nation was founded by white Europeans who believed that they had a special claim to liberty and equality and that they did not believe in liberty and equality for others, most notably the native peoples of North America and the Africans who they claimed to own and to claim to right to trade. These other people were not entitled to liberty and equality. And a lot of these notions of racial hierarchy were built right into our constitution, you know, most famously, of course, in the three-fifths clause and the fugitive slave clause. But the founders were deeply committed to the idea that liberty and equality were for Europeans, so that the very first Immigration Act and naturalization law says that those who were entitled to become naturalized U.S. citizens were those who were loyal to the constitution and who were free white people. There was always a connection between race and who was entitled to be citizens in the country, who were entitled to join the political community. These were not aberrant ideas at the time of the founding, and for many people, they are not aberrant today. So we can think of the Klan, and of course, you know, the the Klan is an important organization. We have to reject it on every level, but to dismiss their view that the nation was founded upon principles of white or at least European supremacy and that denied the humanity of others, you know, is to ignore the truth of our history. And we do see this exclusionary view of citizenship at the beginning of the Constitution. And it seems the trend has been over the centuries to expand the franchise, expand the definition of a citizen. And 
it seems that almost every time when we try to bring more people into the body politic, there is this resistance to it. And you talk about the group threat idea. And could you talk about group threat and its opposition to expanding the franchise? I mean, there's a certain triumphalist view of American history that just sees, you know, that will recognize some of the flaws that I'm pointing out in in our history that, you know, we started out as a nation with liberty and equality for some and over the centuries have increased who is entitled, you know, to enjoy the freedoms that the Constitution provides. And there is certainly some truth to that for sure. That is, you know, the Constitution, you know, as it was adopted, provided for political rights to a very narrow class of white men, primarily land owners and property holders. And we've expanded it to African-Americans with the 14th Amendment. We've expanded it to women and a variety of other groups that would not have been recognized as part of the political community from the beginning. So so there's a certain triumphalist vision of American history that just sees that Jefferson's notion of all men being created equal as being that we have slowly over the centuries come to realize more and more people are included within that banner of equality. I do want to push back on that somewhat because there's always been a push and pull. That is, there have often been periods when we have expanded who's included in the uh, political community in one direction, and then great resistance has come up. And often the resistors have won. I mean, when you look at the history of nativism in this country, you know, nativists succeeded in excluding Chinese immigrants with the Chinese Exclusion Act of the late 19th century, and then the National Origins Act of the early 20th century that kept Jews and Southern Italians out of the country. And in both cases, those who resisted immigration said was these people were not the kind of people who could live in a constitutional republic like ours. They said the Chinese were simply foreign to the constitution and Jews and Italians and Catholics would be loyal to the Pope and Jews just did not have the sort of personality that made them proper subjects of our constitutional republic. Now you bring up group threat theory, and I do rely on this theory quite a bit throughout the book. The theory is essentially this, that is, as the power and status of a dominant group diminishes or is threatened, their cohesion increases and their antagonism and ultimately hatred and violence toward those who they see as threatening their power increases. So we see this in the civil rights movement. That is, you might think that as neighborhoods become more racially integrated, that tolerance by white people of persons of color moving into their neighborhood would increase. But in fact, a lot of evidence shows the opposite. That is that as white people feel more threatened by the increasing power, population, and status of others, their prejudice and dislike of people of color increase. And so we see you know, this in many of the episodes I look at it in my book, and just to, you know, lay out some of the framework for what the book is trying to to do, which shows the constitutional views in chapter one of the Klan and other white supremacist groups, in chapter two of Christian nationalists, chapter three by nativists, chapter four by corporate powers, and and then it turns to a couple of other instances where assertions of nationalism based on the constitution have been used in support of violence. But in many of these instances, what happened is the power of dominant groups gets threatened. So when white people have been threatened by the increasing power and population and status of persons of color, the Klan is formed to defend white power. And they do so by invoking the Constitution because they feel like the United States was designed as a, in the case of the Klan, as a white nation. 
And so they see the threat from non-white people as a threat to the nation. And so they then articulate their views as a defense of the constitution, because they're defending in their mind, the constitution from this threat from people who don't belong as full members of the community. Then Christian nationalists tell a somewhat similar, a less violent story for sure, but a somewhat similar story too. That is, as the power of non-Protestant people increased over the 19th century with the increased immigration of Catholics and Jews and the increased population of Seventh-day Adventists and Mormons and other non-traditionally Protestant people, the sense of threat that the established Protestant groups felt increased, and they saw their status as being under siege. And so they mobilized to defend their power. And again, because they thought of themselves as prototypical Americans, as Protestants, they saw the threat in nationalist terms. So they saw the increasing power of Catholics and and Jews and Seventh-day Adventists and others as a threat to America as they knew it. And so they mobilized to defend themselves, but they articulated their movement in nationalist terms and particularly in constitutional terms. So there's a movement that starts around the time of the Civil War, but that continues through the end of the, the 19th century to amend the Constitution, to declare that the United States is a Christian nation, because it was believed you know, by many of the Protestant groups that if they said, or if the Constitution said that we are a Christian nation, that it would preserve the Christian identity of the country that they saw as being under threat by these foreign groups or groups that they perceive to be foreign. So you see at least a similar pattern. A long dominant group feels itself under siege by others who are claiming power and and prestige and status in the United States. They mobilize to defend their power. They do so by seeing the threat in nationalist terms. That is, they see these non-Protestants as being undermining America as they knew it, and they articulate their vision in constitutional terms, as we have to defend the Constitution by making it Christian. A similar thing happens to Christian nationalists in the 20th century. That is, the new Christian right develops as a response to what they saw as increasing secularism and increasing changes to traditional sexual morality and traditional morality, as expressed in the pro-choice movement and the gay rights movement and in rock and roll. And so you have figures like Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson forming the new Christian right. And what makes that parallel to what happened in the 19th century is because they saw the threats to their power and prestige as, you know, in traditional Christian terms, but they saw it as threats to America as they understood it, the United States as they understood it. And they said, we have to defend the country from these un-American threats. And they did so by saying the constitution is Christian. It was made for a Christian people. You know, so we see again and again, the same pattern where the dominant groups perceive threats to their status in national terms and articulate their visions in terms of defending the constitution. The same thing happens with nativist groups. That is when they see the foreigners coming into the country and they say they're bringing in foreign ideas like socialism and atheism. And and so they want to defend the United States as they understand it by keeping out the unwanted immigrants. We see that throughout the 19th century into the 20th century with all of these immigration restriction movements. And we see it again right now, or at least we saw it quite prominently in the early 2000s with the movement to keep Muslims out of the country. There were a lot of conservative groups that rallied around the idea that Islam is incompatible with the constitution. And so they sought to exclude Muslim immigration because they believed that Islam was somehow incompatible with their vision of America. And so it's no 
surprise to me then when President Trump is elected and he issues his executive order, the so-called travel ban that excluded immigrants from predominantly Muslim countries, that the order uses the same constitutional language that I've been discussing. It says that it wants to keep out immigrants who are not loyal to our founding principles and who are not loyal to our constitution. That is how the threat from Muslims is seen by those who are hostile to them. Again, seen as a threat to the nation articulated in constitutional terms. So this pattern of group threat, nationalist mobilization, and constitutional articulation of a vision to defend long entrenched groups is a pattern we see again and again throughout American history. And it's a subject I explore at considerable length in the book. It's amazing that, you know, these reactions come to other groups being trying to include themselves into the body politic. But this reaction to it has been reliant on expanding the tent. So originally we have only English white men are Americans, are citizens. And then you kind of have to go, well, there's not enough of us. So we're going to start including the Nordic people, then generally Northern European people. Heck, we'll even let the Irish end to be in white nowadays, and then letting the Southern Europeans become considered white. Then you have mainline Protestants accepting evangelicals and Catholics into their organization and on their side. They've had to expand their own franchise in order to hold on to that power center themselves. For sure. I mean, there are, there are just as you're describing, a lot of movements to expand who's included under the tent of being American. And you know, and in large measure, the history of the United States is a history of that expansion. The history that I look at is the reaction to that. That is the movements to push back, to retrench, you know, to try to maintain power by the groups that are threatened by the expansion. You know, so in 1965, when Congress passed the Immigration Act of that year, it for the first time removed any racial requirements to become American because before you know, starting with the very first Congress, they had said to become naturalized, you had to be a, a free white person, a requirement that stayed on the books with very limited change through 1954. But in 65, they get rid of that requirement altogether so that now anyone from any country, regardless of race or national origin, is equally entitled to become an American citizen. But there's a great backlash to that among certain people who think of the nation in ethnic terms or think of those whose ethnicities have long been dominant as being the real Americans or the true Americans, or at least the prototypical Americans. So you have push and pull from, you know, expansion of who's considered American on the one hand and much narrower ideas on the other. What's interesting, at least interesting to me, is that the more threatened the long entrenched groups are by the expansion of the franchise expansion of the notion of who's a citizen, the more firmly they believe in the traditional ideas of who is a real American and who is entitled to be American. And this to me is typified by this, I think, rather startling statistic that as the number of Christians in the country has decreased, that is since the 1950s, the number of people who identify as Christian has gone down and down. So it's now in the between 50 and 60% of, of Americans identify as Christian in one way or, or another. But what's fascinating is that as that number has decreased from 80 or more percent in, in the 1950s, the number of people who believe the United States is a Christian nation has increased. It seems paradoxical that as the number of people who 
identify as Christian has decreased, that the number of people who think of the United States as a Christian nation has increased. It's again explained by the group threat theory that I rely on, that it's as their power has decreased, they come to believe more and more that they're entitled to higher status. They're entitled to think of the United States as their nation. And so they come to believe more and more that it's a Christian nation. The notion of that the United States was a Christian nation didn't exist in any comprehensive or well thought out way until there began to be threats to the status and power of Christians. Well, there wasn't even really people identifying as Christian as much as their individual denominations. I'm a Catholic, I'm a Presbyterian, I'm a Jehovah's Witness, and that it wasn't until really practically in America until the late 60s, early 70s, that Christian kind of became this common identification for people. Yeah, that's right. During the 19th century, when the public schools were being developed for the first time, there was a lot of debate about what kind of Christianity should be taught in the schools. It wasn't a question of should Christianity be be part of the schools. The debate really was what kind of Christianity should be in the school or what sect. And you know, the more liberal side thought it should be a kind of generic Protestantism that would accept all different Protestant sects. The Catholics didn't like that. But that was seen as, for the first time, as you know, a way to expand who could comfortably be included within the school community. And there are some people that contend that the religious right in America, despite their protestations, actually formed in the early 70s as a reaction to school integration, more so than Roe versus Wade being the impetus. That's interesting. I mean, the Christian right formed in response, I would say, to a lot of different social movements that they found to be alienating. School integration would have been one of them, but you know, a lot of the cultural movements of the 60s, women's liberation movement of the late 60s, early 70s, you know, as well as other forces felt alienating to a lot of traditional Christians. And so the, as a response to that, they started to form groups like the New Christian Right. It may also, I, I suspect you're right, that school integration and a lot of the white flight, again, it helped to increase the feeling of alienation by those who resisted it. And I think it's leading a lot of our educational choices nowadays is that fear of integration still. Right. I mean, integration as a, as a movement, you know, was a powerful force in the 60s and 70s after Brown versus Board. But as a movement has stopped being, well, much of a driving force in educational policy. I mean, if anything, the Supreme Court has made it even more difficult by saying voluntary school integration is essentially unconstitutional. That is, uh, schools can't take positive action to try to create integrated schools. All they can do is to not assign students on the basis of race, but they can't do much if they want to create an integrated school. So I would say, you know, both on the, the left and the right, the vision that we were going to create integrated schools as a way to create equality in the United States has, you know, largely died. My first job out of law school was to clerk for Judge Lou Pollack, who had been on the Brown versus Board litigation, you know, worked with Thurgood Marshall and, and others on that litigation. And every 10 years or so, he'd be invited to a panel to talk about the triumph of Brown, in which he never felt because, you know, when they were working on Brown, what they imagined was that they were working toward an integrated country. And, you know, when they would look back, you know, on what happened, you know, as happy as they were with the success that they had in the case, they looked at, you know, what actually was happening in the schools and the amount of integration that actually happened as a result of Brown was fairly paltry. 
it seems like the move to dismantle public education in America does have its basis in that fear of integration. Right. I mean, it, you know, and it, and it plays on a lot of attitudes of local control, and we don't want the big, bad federal government telling us what to do. We get to decide for ourselves. And that includes, you know, the idea of, you know, we get to send our kids to schools with people who we're familiar with and who we feel comfortable with. You know, there is and continues to be great resistance to, you know, having integrated schools. You know, this isn't exactly the um, a subject that I touch on much in the book, although, of course, the, the resistance to Brown versus Board, I do touch on quite a bit in the chapter on the Klan, since they were the most vocal and militant of the groups opposing integration. You know, we had a variety of, you know, the white Southerners were essentially unified in their opposition to integration and enforcing Brown and the Klan set themselves apart from the others, not because of their ideology. All of the groups agreed that integration was un-American, you know, was a plot by communists and Jews to destroy the country. But what set the Klan apart was their view that their position that resisting integration by force was justified. This theory that resisting integration and resisting the power of the government to enforce civil rights resisting by forces justified has strangely, you know, morphed into a very mainstream idea from the time of the Klan to now, a history that I explore in, in the chapter on the use of constitutional rhetoric to justify violence. Because of course the, the Klan thought, you know, as the federal government was enforcing civil rights laws, that it was justifiable to resist what they saw as federal tyranny by force. That principle that the Constitution somehow guarantees the right of individuals to resist tyranny by force, which was a radical idea that the Klan put forward, has become over the decades a very mainstream idea advanced by the gun rights movement. But before it got there, it stayed a radical idea for a couple decades. There was a movement called the Posse Comitatus Movement, that said that citizens should form posses to resist federal tyranny. And again, this movement came out of the Klan, but it became a more national movement to resist federal tyranny that they saw in federal tax law and federal environmental law and federal civil rights law, as well as all sorts of other federal laws that they saw as overreaching. And they believed that the county sheriff needed to defend them from this federal overreaching. But if the county sheriff didn't, then the citizens should form posses to fight federal agents. And there was actually quite a bit of violence directed at federal agents as a result of, you know, the Posse Comitatus movement. That theory is as extremist as it was then, is it eventually becomes the view of groups like gun owners of America who start to see in the Second Amendment belief that individual citizens have a right to resist federal tyranny by force. It becomes the view of the militia movements of the 80s in the so-called patriot movements that see the federal government as enforcing the carrying out the new world order and that citizens need to arm themselves and organize themselves to resist federal tyranny. This is the theory that Timothy McVeigh relied on when he blew up the Murrah building in Oklahoma City, killed 168 people. And he said he was acting in defense of the constitution against federal tyranny and that he had a right to do so because of the Second Amendment. This view that the Constitution guarantees individuals the right to resist federal tyranny by force becomes the view of the NRA, the National Rifle Association, that starts to embrace the so-called insurrectionist theory of the Second Amendment, that individuals have a right to resist federal tyranny by force. And we see that theory then put into practice by groups like Cliven Bundy, 
and Ammon Bundy, his son, when they resist the federal seizure of Cliven Bundy's cattle, and by Ammon Bundy, when he and his compatriots took over the Mahler Wildlife Refuge in Oregon, they said federal government is acting as a tyrannical force. Therefore, we as citizens have the right to resist and take violent action. And they took over the, the wildlife refuge. The same theory is the one that's at the heart of the January 6th, 2021 insurrection. That is, the insurrection is believed that the transfer of power to uh, Joe Biden was invalid and that they had a right to resist by force. This is just what the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys and others said when they were planning for the insurrection. And so then on January 6th, when they rallied at the Capitol armed you know, and ready, they say what they're doing is defending the Constitution and acting under a duty to you know, preserve and protect the Constitution, which they said entitled them to make the right choice as individuals to storm the Capitol and protect what they understood to be the rightful government of the United States by force. So it's a straight line from the Klan through the posse, through the Constitutional Sheriff's Association, to the Bundys, to the January 6th insurrection. All these ideas that you can resist invalid federal law by force, you know, is a old Klan idea now made mainstream. Well, Jared, I think we still have a lot more to talk about in your book, Real Americans. Couldn't you come back next time and talk a little bit more about it? Let me check my schedule to see if I can make it. All right, I'm just, I'm just kidding. Of course, I'd, I'd be happy to keep talking about this stuff because uh, you know I've devoted quite a number of years to researching it. I'm, I'm, I'm always happy to keep talking about these subjects. Thank you, Jared. Until next time. All right, thanks, Steve. Jared Goldstein is the author of Real Americans, The Problem with Constitutional Nationalism, which is published by University Press of Kansas. Join us next time as we continue our discussion of American national identity and how certain strains of thought use it to justify violence in defending their particular view of the Constitution. I'm Stephen Usry, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the City of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.